The stories shared cover a range of topics that some listeners may find sensitive in nature, such as gender identity and sexuality, as well as violence towards members of the LGBTQ community. Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Jean Baresson. And I'm Khadija Booth Watkins. We're two child and adolescent psychiatrists at the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at the Massachusetts General Hospital. June is Pride Month, and our young people are more aware and accepting of differences, I think, than any other generation to date. For parents who didn't grow up in this climate, it can feel daunting keeping up with the language and knowing how to respond when topics surrounding gender identity and sexual orientation come up with the kids of various ages. And they do come up, uh, I hope, uh, to help us work through this and figure out how to talk with our kids about these important and increasingly present topics. I won't get political, uh, although I'd love to. We have a very special guest today. <laughs> And that's Marshall Forstein. Marshall, welcome. Good to be here with you all. Thank you. So Dr. Forstein is an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He joined the faculty at Cambridge Health Alliance in 1984 and has served a number of, of different jobs there. He was director of outpatient services, training director, and acting chair of the department. He was also vice chair for education and training for the Department of Psychiatry at Cambridge Health Alliance. He also served from 1990 to 2002 as the medical director of mental health and addictions at the Fenway Community Health. Since April, 2021, he's been teaching and supervising residents in psychiatry at the Cambridge Health Alliance and is engaged in national courses and teaching in areas of HIV, sexuality and supervision. He's also a father and wrote a wonderful blog for us about his experience being a dad and being a gay man. So we're really just pleased to have him here. And I know it's gonna be a great conversation. But before we get started, let's start off with our own mental health check-in. Khadija, how's this week been for you? This has been a nice week um, along. My son does swim. And so I've gotten to experience our first swim meet and it was an entire day. Um, so I didn't expect it to be such a long drawn out process, but it was a really nice way to spend the, the Saturday with them. Nice drive into Rhode Island. It was a beautiful, clear day. And so we just made a whole day of it. So it was really nice and I'm loving the weather. Um, so it was a pretty good, pretty good week. And happy Juneteenth. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And that was also super exciting to, to have that um, celebrated and acknowledged by so many people um, across the states. Um, so that was really, really uh, monumental. Did you and your family do anything special? So I made like a traditional Southern meal, like typical, like fried chicken, collard greens, cornbread, um, macaroni and cheese, like it was Thanksgiving. My kids were like, like, are people coming over? I was like, no, this is for us. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And then they started to say, well, when you used to cook, well, okay, fine, just enjoy this meal. Um, but it was really nice. So we, we had a good time. Marshall, how about you? How was your week? My week was great. Uh, first of all, I'm salivating over the, the menu that you had because uh, it's one of my favorite. Uh, you know, I'm still coming down off of a high, basically. A couple of weeks ago, I went up to my college 50th reunion, which was the later year. And I met people I hadn't seen in 50 years. I met people I've been in constant contact with at reunions, a bunch of friends that I'm always in contact with. And I just had a wonderful time to reconnect and to realize that being with people is really the only thing that has mattered for me. Um, so it's been a good week. Now that I'm working uh, fewer hours a week and enjoying some of my time to do things I love, this has been a better week every week. That's awesome. And, and we, this is why the pandemic has been so incredibly tough because we just weren't able to, you know, be around the people we, we enjoy in the way that we used to enjoy them and having to learn how to do that differently has been a challenge in and of itself. Right. Gene, how about you? I'm sure you'd have lots to tell. Uh, well, I guess so. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> been, uh, it's been a good week. It's really a good week. I mean, uh, I, um, uh, went to my granddaughter Sasha's, uh, birthday party mm. and she and her sis younger sister and, uh, parents and one of my other daughters and her husband and twins were there. My son couldn't attend. He was, he's, uh, in, uh, on vacation. But uh, it was really great to echo Marshall. It was really great to be able to just hang out with with family and and um, and that's been wonderful. And then and then uh, you know for Father's Day, uh, Sasha and her sister and mom came over and um, we picked wildflowers from my wildflower garden because Sasha's really into them. So I uh, really really enjoyed doing that. Gardens are great. Uh, we could use some more rain, <laughs> but whatever. So um, let's talk about uh, gender identity and sexual orientation. Marshall, since you wrote such a moving blog for us, and in part that reflected your own youth, maybe we could start there. So can you explain the important difference between gender identity and sexual orientation. And I've got to admit, when I first worked on this uh, podcast, I used the word sexual preference. I grew up with that terminology, but it's, it's incorrect. And maybe you could, you could reflect on that as well. Sure, let me first say that language is really important. It really speaks to some of the ways that we think about the world, about people, about ourselves. So uh, I grew up and there was a lot of talk by people about sexual preference as though it was something that we chose, something that we could prefer, like you could, you know, just do it or not do it. And that led to people thinking that if you then identified yourself as gay, you could decide not to be gay. You could prefer not to be. Um, so the word sexual orientation really became more uh, scientifically appropriate. For many people, orientation means a part of who they are the same way that their biological sex or gender developed as well. There, we can get into the question of how people identify, but 
the word gender identity really speaks to how do you think about yourself based on your internal sense of, of am I a male? Am I a female? Am I non-binary? Which is a word that people have to become more comfortable with, meaning that you don't ascribe to the typical meaning of the word male or female, mostly in terms of gender role. And for many people, that also includes, for some people, it also includes the question of, am I uh, a male or female, even though I have that body, my brain feels like I'm in the author identity, which leads us to the whole question of transgender identity. So one can have a male body, but think that their brain, in their brain, they feel like they have been female since, since birth for many people and vice versa. Um, so the language helps us to think about, you know, the difference between how I identify my identity as a, a gender, am I a male, am I a female, am I non-binary, versus sexual orientation, which really speaks to who am I drawn to sexually, erotically, affectionately, who uh, turns me on, who do I want to make more of a contact with than just friendship. Um, and I, you know, I grew up with a lot of language like LGBT, um, and now we have LGBTQIA+, which keeps adding more and more um, letters, which confuse me more and more. And in fact, many people in the LGBTQIA community have chosen to use the word queer, the queer community, which is all encompassing of anybody who doesn't fit into the traditional heteronormative cisgender community. Now, I grew up at a time where the word queer was the worst thing you could be called. You know, queer, faggot, all these names felt that you were being oppressed and uh, diminished. I've had to learn over the last 10, 15 years that like many minority groups appropriate back the language that has been pejorative for them, the gay and lesbian transgender community has recaptured the word queer to be a positive sense of belonging to a group of people that have otherwise been ostracized and stigmatized. Now, I have to tell you, it took me some time to be able to use the word queer in that way. Um, and there are certainly words that identify minority groups that we should not use uh, because they have not yet been appropriated as being okay by that community itself. Um, being Jewish, I can tell you there are several that I would not want to be called. So, and language and words are important. Our word choices are important. And just to kind of follow with what you were just talking about, so many are confused by the LGBTQIA+. Can you just give us some definitions so that we can kind of have them in our toolkit as we talk, we're talking about them? Sure. So L would be for lesbians who identify clearly as I am attracted to the same sex of being a woman. Um, the gay word has been used for males, although the word gay has been used as an umbrella word in many, many cases as well. So we would say L is for lesbians, G is for gay men, B would be for bisexual, um, and T would be for the transgender and Previously, in, in previous generations, it was called transsexual, sometimes with people who had completely uh, reversed their anatomical um, identity through surgical. Um, the I is those people who are interested 
Um, and the A would stand for allies, people who are supportive of the queer community, but don't identify personally in that way. I'm not sure, that, I guess the plus opens up the possibility of whatever comes next, um, since language and life is continuing to be unfolding for all of us. And Marshall, it occurs to me, speaking of language, that in the LGBTQIA+, all except the T are sexual orientation. So could you help us understand what, why T is put in there? <laughs> well, yeah, I think, um, you know, in the early days of the movement, of the gay liberation movement, which was encompassing of both genders, it was really about uh, a community of oppressed people who were stigmatized, prejudiced, who were living illegally in some states, they were um, literally, if they were having sexual relationships with someone of the same sex, they could be jailed, uh, committed crimes. And, and so I think the trans community found that the LGB community was most receptive for seeing them as also a minority community. It's also complicated because for many trans people, how they identify their sexual orientation is sometimes difficult because if they are, if they identify in one way, then transitioning to a different gender may compound the problem of what language they use. Let me, let me be very specific. So if you have a male and female traditionally heterosexual couple, they would call themselves cisgender heterosexual. Okay. Then let's say one of the members of that couple transitions. And so you have either the male or the female. We'll, we'll, we'll take the female who transitions to being male. So now you have a male and a transitioned male, what we call a trans male. You have two men in relationship. Well, traditionally that would be called a gay couple. So it's complicated because it's not just what you think about yourself, it's what other people are likely to call you. And I think that's what compounds the problem of separating out sexual orientation from gender identity. Um, it, it can be confusing for people who aren't facile with language and don't really separate out the gender identity part from the sexual orientation part, since trans people also have a sexual orientation. Maybe we can get a little personal. Yep. How about talking about uh, your own identity and how did you come to terms with it? Can you tell us your story? Sure. So I grew up in a very solid, uh, conservative Jewish family of parents who were pretty much atheistic, but wanted us to have a strong root in the Judea Judaic community and traditions. Um, I uh, understood myself to be a boy and I didn't mind being a boy. But in my family, being a boy meant I could work on construction stuff with my dad and be comfortable with power saws and nails and hammers. And I could easily be comfortable in the kitchen with my mother cooking or reading books. I did a variety of things that didn't pigeonhole me as to what it meant to be a boy. There was a great flexibility in my family for what gender allowed you to do, gender role. Um, and so I knew early on, very early on, that I was different. Um, and I could tell you a story about that if we have time. But so I knew 
easily by the time I had language to say, huh, I'm different from my peers. I'm looking at boys, not girls. Um, and I would go to the New York Public Library when my parents would go into the city and I, they would drop me off at the library for a few hours and I would peruse the books and I'd go to all the things that started with H-O-M-O, -O, homo. And I learned about homozygosity, homogeneity, and I finally got to the books, homosexual, they were all checked out because people were stealing them off the shelves to try to figure out who they were. And of course, we had no internet at that time. So everything that I began to read was in books, magazines about who I was. Now, I made sense of it early on, but I also was so engaged in life in so many other ways, it wasn't kind of like the most important thing. But when I was nine, we were moving from um, Queens, New York to further out on Long Island. And I was saying goodbye to my friends. And I went to one of my friends who I'll call Tommy, who uh, was one of my closest friends. And we were very, now to describe Tommy, he was the kind of kid who could run around and his shirt would stay in his pants. I was the kind of kid who would run around and my shirt would be dirty and it would pull out of my pants and I was a mess. His hair was always fine. My hair was, you know, not. Tommy and I were really close. And when we were saying goodbye, I was at his house and uh, we were standing on the front steps and I had to uh, get home before the sun went down. There were clear rules about all that. And uh, Tommy and I said, well, maybe we'll see each other. Both of us knowing we would probably never see each other again. And we're standing on one stoop and another and he leaned over and pulled me towards him and kissed me on the lips. And then he ran into his house. And once I recovered my ability to move my body, I was like, ah, ah, now I understand. And I probably cried all the way home. Um, but it confirmed that I wasn't the only human being who felt this way. Um, and, it, and then I grew up kind of thinking, okay, so what am I gonna do with this? Um, I also never worried that my family would disown me or abandon me because they were so unconditionally loving about everything. I was really lucky. And I wanna say my experience is not typical of many gay people who grew up in the same era who were terrified to tell their parents, their friends. I have had a blessed ability to come out later on uh, when I was a teenager um, and then in college and then for finally in medical school. Um, so I think that everybody comes to this internal understanding in different ways. Sometimes it can be quite problematic. If you come from a very strong prohibitive religion, for instance, you think you're going to go to hell you think you're going to be killed by people, especially, uh, and, and there's some truth to that. You know, there are members of their family that are disowned by their own parents. Um, I, I know of uh, lesbians who've been beaten up by their brothers. In fact, raped sometimes by their brothers to straighten them out. So I have a kind of best case scenario in my own personal life which I think has allowed me to move ahead in my life in ways that have been, you know, pretty productive. Um, but I also think that parents need to think about why they have kids. And, um, you know, 
as a parent, I never had kids to finish off what I wasn't able to finish in my life. I wanted to raise children to see what their lives could become. Um, I wanted my kids to celebrate, not just tolerate who they were. I wanted them to be able to. Um, and so when my husband and I adopted two boys early on, and before it was common for gay men to do so, we specifically wanted children who would be whoever they were. So we adopted an infant who was a um, Mexican-American baby. Um, and then when he was five, we adopted a gay teenager, male teenager, who was who had run away from home because his mother was so horrific and his older brother had abused him. Um, and that was an experience that we knew what we were getting into. And both of my boys are incredibly loving and um, we were lucky. That's quite an intense experience. And, and it's unfortunate that some, so many, it sounds like, don't have such a, um, a welcoming experience that you had. I'm, I'm curious to know, looking back um, over your, your childhood and, and your, your teenage years, do you now see your experiences any differently? And do you, do you see or do your experience shape how you now parent your, your kids or how you parented your kids? Well, I, I see my experience as I, I realized how extraordinarily lucky I was um, and fortunate to have the kind of love and support. Um, and yes, I think it's influenced my being a parent by saying, whatever my kids bring, bring it on. I will love you. We will work together to make you comfortable with who you are, you know, um, and I think that has allowed them to explore who they are individually without thought that they had to fulfill our unmet destinies. You know, I, I work with so many um, people who still try to meet the needs that their parents have of who they should be, as opposed to finding out who they are and living their life alone. Um, you cannot be a parent without thinking back about your own childhood experience. How would you suggest that um, families in general talk with their kids about these issues? What, when do we start? How, how do they, how, I know it's going to be so wild and different with all different kinds of families, but in general, what principles would you, would you recommend for parents? Well, I think parents have to take an honest inventory of what scares them about their kids growing up? What ages scare them? I think when kids start to become sexual, and that happens really young, um, how do we become comfortable talking with them about sexuality, given all the rampant uh, stuff on TV and on the internet? You know, we have destroyed the ability for children to learn about sexuality in a healthy, non-perfectionistic uh, way. You know, if you look at TV, everybody who is all of sex and, and gender is thought to be only available to beautiful people, which is not an honest portrayal of the world. So I think one has to start early. So I was terrified of how am I gonna talk to my kids about sex? So when I was diapering my youngest kid as a baby, um, I would talk to him 
these, uh, this is your body, this is your penis, this is your testicles, this is how it's going to grow. And when you become a certain age, you're going to have feelings that are going to be confusing. And I hope that we'll be able to talk about it. Now, for a five-month-old, I never expected that he'd remember that stuff, but I was sure becoming more comfortable just talking about it out loud. And I think as he got older, I let him, you know, I would say, you know, we've talked about a lot of stuff about growing older and your body's changing. Do you have questions? Um, and at one point when he was 11, he said, I said, you know, we haven't had a real talk about sex in a while. And he said, Dad, if there's something you need to know, just ask. Um, that is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, something that I didn't know what I was talking about, you know. And I, I think parents have to look at the prohibitions they've int internalized. They have to think about the role of their religions in creating a world that is scary to them and to their kids. I think we have to really face up to the limitations of our ability to understand everything. And, you know, um, we have to be more open than I think many of us are by our own nature or by our own family background. The, the other thing that, that parents and caregivers tend to struggle with as they're having these conversations with their kids is, is the, the pronouns and how the pronouns are changing. And, you know, kids really, you know, we, we all have an identity and, and we feel very strongly about our identity. And so it really, for some kids, can really be extremely invalidating um, when, they're, when the parents don't use the appropriate pronouns or the pronouns they've asked to be, be uh, addressed by. So how, what, what, what recommendations do you give to parents or how do you talk to them about that? Well, I, I think you have to own the fact that it's not easy. You know, it's, it's important to say to a kid, you know, it's going to take me time to, to be comfortable and automatic with using these because I didn't grow up with them. Um, I, I had one, uh, one sort of late teen who got angry because I slipped up once, uh, which we do. And, uh, you know, uh, they got kind of, a little annoyed that I had made a mistake. And I said, wait a minute, how long did it take you to come to this understanding of who you are? You know, you and I know each other for about two months. Can you give me a couple more months to try to become more comfortable? You know, these are changes in how we think about the world. That's not gonna happen overnight. In the same way that I tell, um, you know, gay and lesbian people who are talking about coming out to their folks and who do, and then they have a, kind of halted reaction or negative reaction. And I say, be patient. You've been thinking about this and working on it for years. Give your parents some time to take it in, metabolize it, figure out how they feel, be available to answer their questions, um, but don't push them and say, I know this is new for you. Um, you know, you're the one with the, with the information and the power in that moment so don't abuse it. Just like you don't want them to abuse it. So I'm pretty upfront with people about this and say, you know, if I make a mistake, correct me. You know, I, I do not pretend that I will be perfect with all of these changes. Just like, and I use the example of, I was not comfortable with the word queer. I've become comfortable with it, but it took me time. So I need time for you and I to find our language together as we talk. This is particularly important, obviously, in a therapeutic situation, but I think for parents, it's also important to not feel like they're stupid or that they've made a horrible mistake. And, and you know, it, to expand this a little bit, it's also problematic 
because kids don't live in a vacuum. So right. there's there's teachers, there's peers, there's um, uh, religious or spiritual leaders. So how do you um, discuss these issues? Do you let the kids come home and say, you know, someone said that they were gay and then let them bring it to you? Or do you help open the door and initiate the conversation that they, and, and they may be brutally bullied. Yes. The rates of bullying, uh, we can go there later, but the rates of bullying, of depression, of suicide are huge. So yes. it's, it's a dangerous world. So yes. how, 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 how should parents deal with these issues? Well, I think uh, the bullying, I say that people who bully you are insecure and uncertain about their own identity. And you need to understand that that's what forces them to take it out on someone else when they're upset about themselves. But you also have to know that, um, that you have to figure out who you are and not worry so much about what other people say. You know, when um, there, are, there are adults that I've worked with who throughout their adolescence were called gay, even though they weren't, because they had some mannerisms or their... their the further away you are from what is the traditional heteronormative male, you know, if you're not a cowboy with a pistol, you know, then you are not considered to be the pioneer true male. If you're not a woman who likes high heels and lipstick, you know, you're not considered to be a true female. Now, obviously, there are gay men who are pistol packing cowboys and there are lesbians who are lipstick you know, high-heeled women. So we have an enormous spectrum of how people live their lives and identify. But the, I think bullying comes from seeing people uh, identify in a certain way that challenges your notion of the stability of the world. That's really what I think it's about. And I've worked with people who were gay, who bullied other people before they could come out and deal with their own sexuality. Um, when it comes to kids coming home, I, my attitude is to say to a kid, boy, that, you know, that must have been awful. You know, how can I help? What would be useful for us to talk about? I, you know, sometimes parents feel like they should say to a kid, you know, your father and I think that you might be on the gender spectrum or that you might be gay. I would suggest that we never suggest to a kid how we see them, but rather make it available for them to talk to us. So. So when a kid comes home and says, you know, I was called gay today, you know, my attitude is, well, how'd that feel? What was it like for you to have that thrown at you? And how do you see yourself? Can we talk about that? Do you have questions about it? And whoever you are, we will love you. It doesn't matter to us who you are. We just want you to know who you are and be happy. Um, I think that's hard for parents to say that to be able to say that they're going to celebrate, not tolerate their kids who aren't what they thought they would be. Because I don't know any parent who has a baby who hasn't forecast the entire future of that child. You know, if the, if the baby is male, they already see certain things in their future. And if the baby is female, you know, they're already seeing certain things in that future. And look at the pink blankets, blue blankets, I mean, you know, it's built into our culture to forecast the future for our kids and to have expectations. And we can be terribly wrong. 
you know, I, I'm working with a guy who was an artist who comes from a family of physicians and everybody was really disappointed that he didn't want to be a physician. You know, like, what was that about? Why, why did the child have to be what the parents wanted him to be? Now, this is very true in many cultures, right? Who you're going to marry, who, what profession you're going to have, all these kinds of things. So, and you mentioned earlier about how our kids are now getting their basically sex ed from the internet and from, you know, TV. And, and so the media still doesn't do a great job portraying gender differences and gender fluidity. fluidity. Um, how do we help our young people understand that gender identity and sexuality is not what they see on TV? Can they unlearn these things? You can't really unsee them. <laughs> no, but I, I say to them, you know, you know that most of what you see on TV, if, if you're watching Japanese anime, you know that's not reality. You know that if they have a movie about people who are dying on Mars, that that's not reality yet. Uh, you know, I say what's on TV, what's in the internet, a lot of it is just made up. It's fantasy. So I talk with them about the difference between fantasy and reality. And what you need to learn is what can you believe about what you read? How are you going to figure out and be a critical thinker of what you take in? Not everybody who tells you something knows more than you do about it. Um, and you have to decide how you're going to take in information and figure out whether you can trust it or not. Since so much on the internet, you know, like medical advice is all over the internet, right? Um, so I talk about reality and fantasy. How do we distinguish the two? And how important it is for young people to make up their own minds and not to be swayed by necessarily what they see in pictures, because half of the pictures they see on TV don't really exist. Uh, you can almost manipulate anything on the internet at this point. And I specifically talk about the difference between what they, what they see in sexual material on the internet as not being necessarily realistic at all. I think we have distorted views of sexual experiences by the exposure to early pornography and things like that. Um, and we need to really take home the issue of fantasy versus reality. I, I'm reflecting on a patient that came to me uh, in his early 70s. Now, again, this is, this is going to be a little bit of a commentary about our own guilt as psychiatrists, because in the 50s, it was a famous book by Biebring, and uh, the model of psychotherapy was to change. Right. So, uh, being gay was considered a perversion. Right. Uh, and, and, uh, and he went through psychoanalysis where they tried to make him change. His father tried to make him change. And he came to me and he said, look, it, I've been gay my whole life. I want to I wanna accept it. I want to learn to accept myself yeah. for who I really am. And I think that, that it's, it's really great that you're focusing on helping us uh, accept us the way we are. But there are many forces in society yes. that are not in right. that effort. Absolutely. And I think it's going to become even more difficult if certain decisions are made at the highest level of the courts. Um, you know, people are terrified that their rights are going to be taken away. Um, you know, we are not at a point in our society, even in, in uh, you know, totally blue states where everything is guaranteed. 
that it is safe for all gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people um, at this point. I think we have to teach people to be more resilient, to be honest with themselves. You know, I think the great thing about, I've worked with a number of older people too, um, and their sadness, the regrets that they have, the missed opportunities um, are tragic. I, I talk about the trauma they've suffered, you know, that other people would take away your right to be you, to fulfill some expectations they had of you, um, I think for parents, it sometimes comes down to feeling like they have failed their kids, you know, um, and I've worked with so many, and in fact, George Weinberg wrote a book in the 60s called Society and the Healthy Homosexual, and it was about people in nursing homes at that time who had lived their life silent about their sexual orientation as being non-hetero, um, and the sadness that people had about having missed out the opportunity to be who they were. And that has to do with the idea of, we have to help people become their authentic self. People will work so hard to do that. And sometimes the window of opportunity is late. Um, and I find as a therapist, that's very sad for me to see that. Um, but I can't change their past, nor can they. I think the other part is not only their sadness, but their rage that they have towards people who got in their way of being themselves. You know, I mean, Big Bring was finally dis, you know, discredited. The whole conservative, the whole uh, reparative movement, conversion movement has been discredited. But there are still therapists out there believing this. This applies particularly in the religious communities that think this is against God's will. Parents and caregivers really just letting the kids know that, that they're loved and accepted unconditionally. And that's so important. And, you know, parents and caregivers and teachers even, they want to help. So is there anything that they can do when kids seem to be unclear or uncertain to help them figure it out? Or do you just let them give them the space and time to do it on their own? You know, it's great for a teacher to be able to say to a kid apart from the crowd, you know, I, I know that you're struggling. You may be struggling with saying, I'm here if I can be helpful. All kids your age are struggling with figuring out who they are and who they want to be. And it, you're not on this earth to fulfill anybody else's expectations of you. It's your goal to live your life. You only get through it. My dad had a wonderful statement, which I never understood. Well, too. He said, if you treat your kids right, they'll bring you upright which meant you have to listen to what your kids are telling you um, in order to know how to be parents to them. That doesn't mean you don't have rules or expectations, but you have to really listen by talking to our kids. I think we don't teach parents how to talk to their kids. Um, I think that's a tragedy in our culture. And I just, I just try to work with parents to say, let's look at what's so difficult for you about this. Uh, and that it will take time. Um, I think family therapy can be quite helpful if the parents are willing to recognize that. Well, we have to wrap up. I mean, there's so much more to talk about and, and we will, this is the first of a series of talks. But, um, uh, we hope that this has been a helpful conversation. And to wrap up on a positive note, 
Marshall, what's something you're looking forward to in the next week or so? I am looking forward to just reconnecting with people over and over again. At, at my age, I realize that that's the only thing that really matters is maintaining and, and growing relationships uh, with other people. And I'm, I'm spending more time with uh, people I love. Khadija, how about you? That sounds so nice. Like I, I'm just thinking about now who could I who could I plan to see in, in the next week? Um, I mean, I'm just looking forward to really spending in a different way, spending some time, quite some quiet time to be able to kind of reflect on where I am, uh, where I want to be and what things are important to me. That that's what I'm looking for in this next week. I just feel like things have been pretty chaotic and I need to just take a step back and just kind of reset and reorganize. So that's what I have in store for me this week. How about you, Jean? I wish I had time for that. You have I, to I, make time for that. That's what I'm, I, I'm making time for it. I know. And you're right. And Marshall, I, I, I have about, uh, I guess, eight or 10 college friends. I uh, did not go to my 50th which just passed, but uh, we have a Zoom call once a month uh, and uh, people attend that. So uh, what am I looking for? Um, well, I'm looking for, I'm looking forward. Uh, I'm not going to the, um, the American Academy, but in the next, uh, but, but right before the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, uh, we're going to have a birthday party and the band Pink Freud and the Transitional Objects are going to play for David Kay and Tony Rothstein's 70th plus, 70th-ish birthdays. This weekend, next week, and the week after, I'm going to be kind of working on tunes uh, to play with the band. Because <laughs> music is about the only thing that, that allows me to, um, besides my dog, uh, allows me to kind of really... Um, uh, immerse myself in something and block everything else in the world out, which sometimes is really important. So thanks everybody. Uh, we hope that our conversation helps you have yours. I'm Gene Veresen. I'm Khadija Booth Watkins. Thank you. And we'll see you next time. I learned so much. I know. It, it was amazing. My therapy sessions. <laughs>